as hell and I wanna get ill So I go to a place where my homeboys chill Fellas out there trying to make that dollar I pulled up in the 6-4 Alright everyone, welcome back to the Bored as Hell podcast I'm Adam McDonald with Big Shiny Robot And I am Andy Wilson, aka Citizen Bot, also Big Shiny Robot And we're here to talk to you about three movies this week uh, Unfortunately, neither one of us got a chance to go see Hunger Games And I obviously want to see it because I've been a huge fan of the series uh, so hopefully if Black Friday doesn't kill us all, uh, we will have that review next week. So please stay tuned for that. Yeah, I really apologize. Too much work this week, and it just it just killed both of us because yeah. we're games fans in my house too. So and it didn't it didn't help that my uh a, like a, a vice president came into the store and wanted to hang out until eight p.m. the night of the uh, the Mockingjay screening. So that was my excuse. It, it didn't help that I had to be in Atlanta at an EPA hearing on Obama's uh, greenhouse gas emissions policy uh, the night of our screening. So, thanks, Obama. Yeah, thanks, Obama. You made me miss <laughs> uh, But we do have three movies for you. We've got uh, Secret in Their Eyes, uh, The Night Before, and Spotlight. And stay tuned to the end because we are doing our Star Wars countdown and we are going to discuss all three prequels today uh, in order to make sure we finish with Return of the Jedi the week before The Force Awakens. Uh, but Andy, go ahead and talk to us about Secret in Their Eyes. Yeah, The Secret in Their Eyes. Uh, this is a remake of a 2009 Spanish movie, uh, which tells the story of um, a, a counterterrorism task force in 2002 in the wake of 9-11, uh, who are set up in Los Angeles, and a major tragedy befalls them. Uh, one of their members... Julia Roberts, uh, her only daughter, the love of her life, is raped and murdered, and Ooh. her body is dumped uh, outside of the mosque that is the focus of uh, their task force's investigations. Uh, turns out that the person that they think most likely did this is a confidential informant who has infiltrated the mosque. And so people from on high are protecting him and not allowing them to go after them. Cut to today, and uh, Chuyatel Ejiofor uh, has gotten out of the FBI and is now running private security. He's the head of the security for the New York Mets, but he has spent the last 13 years chasing down leads on this guy, and he thinks he's finally found him. Uh, so... This story unfolds on two tracks in both the present day and in the past as you see exactly what happens uh, in their previous investigation and how they screwed it up and uh, what prevented him from uh, being arrested and uh, how he got away uh, to today and what they're doing to try and hunt this guy down. Um, there is a major twist ending that you probably won't see coming. Uh, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, I thought to myself, huh, wouldn't it be interesting if... And then I'm like, nah, that's that's insane. Um, that's and I'll, I'll throw something out right now. I'm just on Wikipedia. Don't go to Wikipedia because they have the ending. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that should just be like a blanket thing. Don't read the Wikipedia page of the movie that you're going to go see. Listen to us. Listen to us. <laughs> exactly. We, we keep it pretty spoiler-free unless we don't care, like, hate the Coopers. So. <laughs> For a movie like that, where it doesn't matter uh, because it's just awful. Right. Yeah. Who, who cares? But for a movie like this, you'll want to see the ending because it is absolutely amazing. Uh, the real... The cast here is absolutely amazing. And... In this, I I think that this is this year's Mystic River, which if you remember from how long ago was that? Like ten years now, almost. I want to say it was two thousand six. Let me find out really fast while you're talking. Yeah. So, like nine, ten years ago, uh, that was a a major acting tour de force. Oh, Twelve years ago. Twelve years ago, even wow. longer. Uh, Sean Penn and Kevin Bacon. And, uh, you know, they just did an amazing job. Uh, the cast here, specifically the big three in this cast, uh, Julia Roberts, Chuyadol Ejiofor, and Nicole Kidman do phenomenal job. Uh, they're, they're backed up by, um, by Alfred Molina 
is as the the DA in the past, and he is just slimy as all get out, and he is amazing at it. On top of that, you get Michael Kelly, who if you are a fan of House of Cards, he's Kevin Spacey's little toady guy. Yeah, I mean, I love him. He's amazing. He He's absolutely amazing, and he is phenomenal in this as well, uh, playing the same kind of little troll guy. Too bad. He's, he's a great actor. He seems to be getting typecast in those kind of roles, but he's great here. Um, there's a uh, unrequited love romantic subplot between uh, Edgy of Four and Kidman that is just absolutely phenomenal and you feel for these two characters where they're like uh, they feel kind of like star-crossed lovers but they can't be with uh, each other for so many reasons again the way that this story is told and it unfolds both in the past and the present is just great storytelling really depressing uh, so so go in with your hankies um, because it's it's really really crazy uh, but this is a movie that I think you should go ahead and see if uh, if you can get past the fact that this is about uh, the rape and murder of a, a teenage daughter. Um, that that is a very depressing subject and not for everyone. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, but it's only rated PG thirteen. Uh, there's there's nothing super graphic in here. But uh, I think just for content, uh, you should. It's just like very, very adult subject matter. Exactly, exactly. So just just be forewarned of that. Uh, but I really like this movie, um, and I think that this might, you know, if if the Oscar people are feeling very nostalgic and they want to mm-hmm. uh, throw a bone to uh, Julia Roberts, so or yeah, here's a yeah. Here's here's something for a a lifetime achievement award Oscar uh, for a best supporting actress nomination. I think that could conceivably happen. Uh, she does a great job, but but Edgy Afor and Kidman are really where it's at in this movie. Those two mm-hmm. are amazing, and and Molina and Kelly. Molina and Kelly maybe even better uh, than those those top three. Uh, but this is all about the acting. Great story. Great storytelling. Uh, intense and it's it doesn't feel that long it comes in at 110 minutes you're not sitting there for in the theater for forever uh right. it just gets in and out and gets the job done a uh, very good concise storytelling uh so i'm at like a seven and a half out of ten on this this isn't like oh my gosh you have to see this but i think it's worth your time if you're looking for something over thanksgiving break that is a little more uh heady than Hunger Games or uh, Victor Frankenstein uh, or The Good Dinosaur, which both of which we'll talk about next week, uh, this might be for you. Yeah, so it, it definitely sounds like you know we're we're in Oscar season pretty heavy right now, so we're we're probably looking at more. Um, I guess you'd say that the acting awards for this than maybe anything else. Maybe maybe a screenplay, maybe an adapted screenplay. It's uh, again the story is told really well. But with these two unfolding timelines, and they they do that very well. Yeah, because I'll, I'll be thoroughly. I mean, uh, thoroughly. Uh, Bridge of Spies was that adapted or was that original? I forget. I think that was a book, wasn't it? Oh, you know, I don't remember. Good question. Yeah, because I mean, thinking of some of the the really great uh, you know scripts we've had this year, I think Bridge of Spies is up there. Um, and yes, that would actually be an adapted screenplay. So it was written by G- Giles Whistle, I believe is his name. Because um, that was obviously a very, very fantastic script you know, with the Coen brothers putting their touch on it. Um, but to me, I think still the best script I've heard all year was uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah, and, and that'll be... I mean, that should just hands down win Best Adapted Screenplay. I mean, that's just phenomenal yeah. storytelling. It's, it, it's Shakespeare adapting the life of Steve Jobs. <laughs> so, cool. Well, that sounds like uh, something to definitely go check out if you want... Like you said, something a little headier, uh, maybe meatier to take on, uh, which is the exact opposite of the night before, which I got a chance to see this week uh, when I wasn't at work. <laughs> um, you know, we, we mentioned last week with Hate the Coopers, uh, like how much I still enjoy, you know, good holiday movies like, you know, Christmas Vacation, Christmas Story, Home Alone. Um, those are all great for when the kids are around. But when the kids go to bed, you got to break out like your bad Santa. And <laughs> some of those 
little bit more risque and adult type movies. And uh, the night before will definitely fit in with those more adult themed holiday classics. Uh, it's it is R rated, and for you know, parents who are taking their kids to see movies and think, oh, it's an R rated movie, my kids can handle it. Uh, I would very strongly recommend to make sure they're no younger than 16 because it's very vulgar. <laughs> um, there's a who, lot of... Who, um, take, who takes their kids to go see a Seth Rogen Christmas movie? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, it's really dirty. It's, it's raunchy. It wears its R rating on its sleeve. Um, there is so much male genitalia in this movie. I'm surprised it got away with an R rating. I was kind of ex- I was like, oh, well, I can... That's interesting. That's I've not seen that in an R-rated movie before. So under equality, uh, it's happening. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's yeah, it's funny. Anyways, uh, the night before tells the story of three friends who are played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Seth Rogen, and Anthony Mackie. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Ethan, and years and years ago, I think about fourteen years ago, on Christmas Eve, his parents were killed in a car crash, and so his friends Isaac and Chris Roberts, played by Seth Rogen and Anthony Mackie take it upon themselves to, you know, hey, let's go out, let's let's have some drinks, let's do some drugs, let's just have a good, fun night as best friends. Um, just kind of, you know, get your mind off of what's happened with your, with your family. So they do it every single year. Every single Christmas time, they go out to do this. Well, I think it was the first or the second one, they're at a bar, and these group of, like, really gorgeous people walk in, and they're, like, drunk. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe we didn't die with all the drugs I did. They're like, where did you where did you come from? She's like, it's the Nutcracker ball. It holds up this little invitation shaped like a Nutcracker. And so that kind of becomes like their white whale over the last 14 years of trying to find and get into this mythical, you know, Nutcracker ball that they've heard all about. Well, everyone's grown up now, except for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He's still kind of the same. He's can't commit to his girlfriend. So she breaks up with him. Uh, Seth Rogen is about to have a kid. So this is the last time he's going to be able to go out and be irresponsible and Anthony Mackie uh, was drafted and uh, got into uh, playing pro football for, I can't remember what team. And even though he's in his mid-30s, he's you know starting to get more popular. People recognize him. He's got sponsorship deals. So they just don't get to hang out anymore. So they want one last big hurrah to go out there and do that. Uh, and to put it bluntly, wackiness ensues. Uh, they eventually find tickets to the Nutcracker Ball. They get in, have a good time. It's really funny. Uh, I, I, I haven't laughed this hard at a movie in a long time. Like I said, very, very, very adult. So please keep that in mind. Uh, you got some really fun uh, little cameos. Miley Cyrus is in it for all of, you know, three, four minutes. And she's actually funny. Um, I won't give one away. And again, stay away from Wikipedia because there is kind of a surprise guest that's alluded to throughout the movie. And it's really funny when they show up. But the best character in the whole thing is Michael Shannon, who's playing Mr. Green, their weed dealer. Now, this is the same weed dealer they had in high school, like, you know, when they would go to the school and, you know, wait for him to show up. And he almost kind of plays, like, this Zen Buddhist advisor throughout the movie as he interacts with the characters, because they keep on losing the weed, so they have to keep on seeing him over and over again. Um, and I won't say much more, because there's he's got the best lines, he's got a really cool little twist at the end, um, every scene he's in steals that he steals this movie. He's fantastic. It's worth going to see just for him because uh, yeah, it's it, it's just amazing. Uh, the only so, drawback, huh? Hang on. So the Falcon buys weed from General Zod. Exactly. Yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> um, I, I didn't even put that together. So and then actually had the Green Lantern there too. So and you had Robin from. Uh, the Batman series. So yeah, I guess I guess all those superheroes are druggies. Who knows? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, he steals every scene he's in. He's amazing. The only time when the movie kind of falls flat is when it kind of tries to be emotional and talk about, you know, how Joseph Gordon-Levitt needs to grow up and quit being afraid to commit. And every so often they throw those scenes in and it just kind of brings the whole thing down. It would have been a lot better if they would have just said, hey, screw it. We're having a zany comedy. Let's have fun with it. But even then, it's still it's still a ton of fun. I was really really happy with it. There's an amazing scene with Seth Rogen in his um, very much bad Christmas sweater. It's got a big star of David on it. Where he goes to a Catholic church, and he's he's actually fried out of his mind on drugs the entire movie. That's that's the thing. His wife gives him a little box of drugs. She's like, "We well, haven't done any in so long. Go have fun." And 
he starts, he looks up and there's a crucifix. And he's like, oh my God, you think we did that to him? We didn't do it. We didn't do it. And it freaks out in the church. It's one of the best scenes in the movie. Um, but yeah, ton of fun. Go see it. It's really good. I'm at a 7.5. That sounds really fun. I, I'm going to try and take some time and maybe I'll just go spend like all of Wednesday at a movie theater going from like theater to theater to theater. And I'll, <laughs> I wish I could do that. I'll do Hunger Games. I'll do a couple of others that I missed, um, but that sounds really awesome. I I want to I want to go go to see that. But again, it's not for kids. Trust me. Yeah. There's multiple multiple scenes of male genitalia that will scare them. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking speaking of, of male genitalia, <laughs> male genitalia that will scare children. Um, the movie that you should really check out this week, and that I think everyone is going to be talking about awards season is Spotlight. Um, Spotlight is the name of the Boston Globe's investigative team and they were the ones back in 2002 to 2003 who uncovered the uh, Catholic Church priest abuse sex scandal in the Boston Archdiocese. And so this movie starts out in uh, mid-2001 a new editor has come to the Globe from Miami, uh, played by Lee Shriver, and he is—he is one of those guys, Shriver, who just, depending on the movie, can just knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. And he—he's phenomenal in this. This entire cast is phenomenal. I could—I could pontificate on how each of them are amazing here, uh, but let me move forward. So he shows up, and uh, he starts going through and talking to all of the department heads. And he, uh, so he calls in Michael Keaton, who is the head of the Spotlight team, and says, what are you guys working on? Well, we've got this, like, road construction things. Like, well, what about, what about uh, church sex abuse? Have you ever thought about doing something like that? Yeah, we kind of looked into it. There's a lot of dead ends. He's like, well, there's this lawyer, uh, played by Stanley Tucci, who is bringing some class action suits. He might have some new evidence. Go talk to him. Just see if there's anything there. Just go talk to him. And if there's nothing there, then that's it. Mm-hmm. And like, hey, you really don't understand how this town works. This, the the Catholic Archdiocese runs this town. Everyone is either Catholic or has Catholic roots or has Catholic family and going after this giant institution is, you know, you're, you're going to be pissing into the wind. And he's like, this is still a news story. You should go look. And he says, okay. So he goes, he goes to his investigative team, uh, which includes Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams and Brian Darcy James and says, let's start, let's looking into this stuff. And so they do. And, this is the story of how they put all of the pieces together that figured out how the diocese was essentially playing this shell game with priests where someone would get caught, uh, their, their accusers would come forward, the church would pay them some hush money uh, to try and make it go away. They'd move the priest uh, to another area and then pretend it just kind of didn't happen. Um, But then they figured out that there was this cycle of serial abuse going on. Mm -hmm. And um, there was, there's a lot in here about uh, kind of uh, class elements um, that these are, these are poor kids that are being picked on and abused. Uh, There's a lot of elements here about, um, you know, what happens when institutions get too powerful and they're allowed to, uh, they're allowed to manipulate people through the, the goodwill that they've created. It's, it's just a really amazing story. And the, the only thing that I can compare it to is all the president's men, um, because it is that same sort of mystery of them chasing down this newspaper story. Mm -hmm. And just like that, the acting is amazing. It's incredible. It's legendary. Go back. One of our earlier episodes, All the President's Men, uh, was yeah. my recommendation. The episode where we, we did our favorite uh, Robert Redford movie. This is just 
uh, a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. And the performances here uh, are, are amazing. I think the other thing that really rings true here uh, are all of these reporters themselves come at this story from very different places. Mark Ruffalo is a former, he's a lapsed Catholic, and he kind of has a lot of uh, antipathy towards the church. Rachel McAdams is like kind of a, she's one of those like Christmas and Easter kind of Catholics, but she sometimes goes with her grandma and it's kind of cultural, but it's not, it's not really that big. Uh, Brian Darcy James is like, well, I'm not, I'm not really Catholic, but uh, he, there's a very terrifying scene where he figures out um, that they have these kind of safe houses where they put priests who are under, uh, who have just been caught. And he finds mm -hmm. out one in his neighborhood and he's got little kids at home. And so he like freaks out and he's like, do not go anywhere near this house. Right. Um, and uh, and then Michael Keaton, who is the old hand here, and man, this is this is like the Michael Keaton Renaissance between Birdman last year and this. He is just showing how, how phenomenal he is. Oh yeah, he has the most he has the most amazing story of any of these guys um, because as he is going along, uh, he is like, how could we have let all of these institutions? cover up this institutional abuse um that it's it's cyclical and it is institutional and uh he he kind of uh pulls a like like whoa i was i was involved in the cover-up too mm -hmm. um as back in the early 90s when some of these allegations started coming forward uh, he was running the Metro desk and didn't chase down the leads as, uh, you know, as vociferously as, as he might have and as he is now as the head of Spotlight. Um, there's a lot to say in here about the need for a good fourth estate, uh, which is how the media, the print media especially, is often referred to. And it's a, it's a kind of strange time capsule because this is happening at the same time that newsrooms are being slashed across the entire country uh, as the rise of the internet. And so now a place like the Boston Globe um, or any of our local papers mm -hmm. do not have the resources uh, and people power to put into researching a story like this. Well, that's it's, also like a lot of papers are doing like what the Deseret News does up here in Salt Lake is, um, I guess they call them citizen journalists. Like we're I can go and just like, oh, I'm gonna write an any story and put it up there, and then, you know, people are basically freelancing for the the paper. So you you don't have, like you you said, the, the resources aren't there to pay these investigative journalists, and it feels like that we're they're focusing more on you know being a talking head or shooting out you know sound bites than they are on actually telling the news. Yeah, and this is amazing. I mean, they're given like a year and a half to put this story together from when they first start chasing down leads to when they start publishing articles. And then when they start publishing them, they publish over 200 articles in a row detailing all of these things that they, that they found out. And um, it's, you know, this is the power of the media and it feels like we lost something. Uh, so it, it's, there's, it's very subtle and that is an, brought up a whole lot and unless you think about it you're not going to come away with that message mm -hmm. but, that, but that's what i came away uh from this with and a profound respect for every single actor in this film uh who is just amazing oh and i i forgot to mention john slattery um who plays one of the senior editors who uh it's actually ben bradley jr um who uh jason robards plays ben bradley who was the uh editor the legendary editor of the washington post mm -hmm. Bradley jr was the assistant editor of the boston globe at this time and is played by john slattery uh, it's just you know a fun little detail uh, since i was making comparisons yeah all the cool so what are what are we at oh uh nine out nine out of ten this nine is ten. just absolutely amazing film uh depressing and so and again like the biggest 
of trigger warnings, content warnings, they're very graphic in here about what uh, they they ask former abuse victims, like what they were forced to do. And um, it they tell you. And it makes you think because, you know, I had this idea in my mind of like, oh, pre-sex abuse is like, oh, they like touch their junk or whatever. It's like, no, there's like, there is really, really, really bad stuff going on. Yeah. Well, and from what I've read too, it's their, you know, the movie itself is being presented as almost like an investigative report as well, because it's not out there to, you know, slight or slam the Catholic church. No. Fact, uh, a lot of the actually the archdiocese of I think it is Boston has come out and said like no this is a good movie this is a true story um, and it's important that the the facts are out there that people aren't you know jumping to the wrong conclusion or thinking things that are incorrect and even the Vatican has said no this is we support this movie so yeah. I think it's kind of an act of act of final act of cleansing from them as well yeah well and that's that's why I mentioned that like each of the members of the spotlight team were coming at this from a different lens on Catholicism and Mark Ruffalo's lens was not Rachel McAdams lens. And you really saw that clash in how they, how they were approaching the story and what they wanted to do. Ruffalo was out of blood. You know, he really wanted to, to go after these guys and um, you know, this, but I did not come away feeling in any way like anti-Catholic or anti archdiocese of of Boston, I felt, um, you know, this is a movie about large institutions. Uh, It's about the institution of the Boston Globe and that institutional media and its power versus other large institutions, whether they be churches or Mm -hmm. corporations or governments. That's why they're there to provide that check. And so this isn't, um, you know, this isn't an anti-Catholic movie any more than all the president's men is a libertarian diatribe on the evils of, uh, the, <laughs> you know, so that right. it, yeah, this was about specific people and their specific uh, <clears throat> policy problems and, and the cover up and, and more than that about the cleverness of an ingenuity of these reporters and their tenacity in uncovering it. Cool. Well, it's, again, it's one that's been on my list. One that I really wanted to see, so hopefully I will get some time, probably not this week, but the week after, uh, or maybe someone who listens, who gets screeners, will uh, let me come over and watch with them. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, we won't name, we won't name names, but uh, so mm-hmm. to move on to a, a much lighter topic, because <laughs> I think that's we've had two pretty heavy movies we've discussed. Um, so Star Wars comes out, uh, The Force Awakens comes out in less than a month now. So what we wanted to do is we kind of wanted to take a chance to kind of have a, a, a brief retrospective of all six movies leading up, because I know I'm going to watch all of them again, you know, even the ones I oh, don't yeah. like as much. <laughs> uh, so and we're going we're to do one a week starting next week, so that way we can finish the um, week before Force Awakens come out. But in order to do that, we have to tackle the prequels all at once. Um, so the point of this, and we're actually going to try to invite Brian Young on here, but he, he's busy doing stuff with real life. Um, our purpose is is not to bash and not to um, be an apologist, but just kind of being as objective as possible about you know the good and the bad things about not only the prequels but just Star Wars in general. Because um, you know a lot of people out there do hate the prequels. Um, some people hate the Ewoks. Some people love the prequels. I think it really depends on your age um, and kind of what mindset you kind of took going in, but. Um, Andy, so I know you enjoy the prequels more than I do. Yeah, I have a very complicated relationship with the prequels. Um, I, I like them overall as movies. I, I think that they're good movies, not bad movies. Um, but I will say that they do not meet uh, they do not meet my highest expectations of Star Wars uh, the same way that the the originals that I grew up with do. And that might just be an effect of nostalgia. We talked about that mm-hmm. we go with the Peanuts movie. Um, nostalgia is really effective. But even, I mean, here we are 15 years after uh, The Phantom Menace came out. 
I still feel pretty much exactly the same way I do about it now as I did then, which I, I like that movie. I pop it in every once in a while and I'll watch it. Uh, it's same with all of the other prequels. Um, but they're, they're not as much my favorite ones in the same way that uh, Magical Mystery Tour is not my favorite Beatles. <laughs> that, that's fine. I still enjoy I Am The Walrus, and I can say Magical Mystery Tour is not my favorite Beatles album. Mm-hmm. But I still love the Beatles. That doesn't mean I don't love Abbey Road less or Sgt. Pepper's less. Yeah, I think you know, going into Phantom Menace... Because I, you know, I was a huge Star Wars nerd as a kid. I mean, we my, we recorded off TV the, the first Star Wars when I was, I don't know, three or four, and we watched that thing religiously. Every single day, we at least watched it once. I would say for a, a year straight, and then of course Empire and Return of the Jedi. So it was such a huge part of my childhood. I think going into Phantom Menace, which I actually camped out for, uh, we were the first in line for tickets and one of the first to even get in the theater. Now, kids back in the day, you couldn't go online and order tickets. You had to go wait in line. <laughs> so, uh, you know, not nearly as long as Brian was in line, but we were there for a good couple of days. So I think the, the the sense of wonder and the expectation of, oh, my God, new Star Wars. For the first movie, when I walked out, I couldn't help but feel a little bit disappointed. Because I think, again, I'd set that uh, level of expectation so high, which I'm trying really hard not to do with Force Awakens because, again, it's been – that amount of time between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace is almost as we've had between then and now. So as much as I'm really excited for it, I'm just trying to damper that hope. So the first movie I kind of walked out more, maybe let down. In retrospect, there are a couple of things that stand out that I don't like about it. I, I, I've never liked Jar Jar Binks. And I know that you know, kids who went saw when they were kids love Jar Jar Binks and think he's funny. Never did it for me. And Jake Lloyd, aside from being a horrible person, um, is also a horrible actor. And that just, his role as Anakin just ugh, tore me out of the experience. Other things you mean the kid from Jingle All the Way isn't Sir Lawrence Olivier? Come on, Adam. <laughs> Come on. Right, but this is also, you know, the same amount of time that we found our Haley Joe Osment, who, you know, from, yep. you know. Six Sense. Six Sense, thank you. I brain fart. So, and also the kid from The Room, who is, you know, might even become one of the youngest actors ever to get nominated for Best Supporting Actor. So there are tremendously talented children out there who would have made that role more, you know, would have fleshed the role better and just wouldn't have been quite so grating and annoying. Um, that said, some of the things I didn't mind too much, like the whole midi-chlorians or what determine if you're a Jedi or not, that actually was kind of cool for me because I was a biochemist in college, so having an organic explanation for why some people are Jedi and some people aren't, I thought was kind of fun. That didn't bug me at all. Um, the best part about the prequels in the whole is Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan. I mean, he is just absolutely fantastic. And uh, Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon Jinn was great. And, of course, we all love Darth Maul, that last lightsaber scene. It was cool seeing the Emperor as a senator, and kind of getting a feel where he came from. So yeah, so looking back, there's there's some things I do like a lot about it. Um, it just unfortunately there's a couple of things that's so great. So I'll probably watch it again, you know, when I'm doing my run up to Force Awakens. But it's not one I pop in more than once every couple of years. My run up to uh, Episode One, The Phantom Menace, was one of the weirdest of anyone I know. I was on a um, shall we say religiously affiliated vacation in southern russia at the time you know like you do and yeah like you do when you're 19 through 21 and mormon (laughs) and uh you know all around me i was seeing posters for episode pierre and uh like oh cool there's (laughs) star wars coming out i'm so excited to see this and um so i came home in september of 1999 and so the film was almost all the way out of theaters. Oh, yeah. I found one theater in all of Utah County, Utah, that was still playing it uh, in Pleasant Grove, the, the Water Gardens 8. And that's where, I saw, um, that's where I saw The Phantom Menace for the first time, like four or five months after everyone else had. Um, I was really blown away by some of the visuals. Um, that, oh, it's a gorgeous movie. That, that scene where... 
yeah, I I didn't really jive with Jar Jar Binks for a lot of reasons, but like when they when they go underwater and uh, they're in um, the Gungan underwater city. I'm you know, like, I was oh just thinking about that when, when you said how beautiful it was. That was the first scene that popped in my head. Yeah, that's like absolutely gorgeous. And so, you know, I've you can't fault Lucas as a visual storyteller, but maybe he's not the best writer of dialogue or <laughs> director of actors. So uh, I, I think that's what was that's what was lacking here. I mean, you you hit it perfectly that Ewan McGregor was the the standout star here, and that that final fight scene. Uh, between him and Ray Park, um, with Darth Maul and and Obi Wan, uh, I mean, you go back and you watch some of the behind the scenes stuff. And when they were sparring, they were using these aluminum rods for their lightsabers. And when they they were hitting each other so hard that they came out all bent and misshapen from where they were hitting one another, mm-hmm. and they were literally trying to beat one another up and show who was the better swordsman between the two of them that like that um that anger towards one another really showed up on screen and uh so that holds a special place in my heart um it took me a couple screenings before i got over the shock that this was not as good of a star wars movie as i remembered uh the third or fourth time i saw it though at the very end and the parade and the kids are all uh you know cheering and singing and i'm like oh i get it this mm-hmm. is an effing kids movie this is <laughs> for little children i get it okay i need to turn my adult brain off and uh, but it's but it had all of the elements that i don't like in a lot of children's movies fart humor and um you know, stupid things like that. Uh, Kidster, like, oh, one of the most annoying characters ever, even beyond Jar Jar Binks. Um, so, you know, that it's fine. Yeah, I, I, I take the good with the bad. Um, but, yeah, episode one. Uh, so for me, my first, like, experience going through the hype of Star Wars and everything was actually with episode two. Oh, really? And- this was my chance to get super hyped up because as I mentioned, I was in Russia completely cut off from all media. Uh, so I didn't see all of the, the trailers and the TV spots and like the toys and exactly. Or the, the commercials with uh, uh, KFC and the Taco Bell dog and the pizza hut delivery girl or whatever their super action team up thing. was. <laughs> insane marketing that was going on with that. So I got sucked into episode two and that for me was awesome. And I like went around and collected all the little things and everyone was just like, Oh, star Wars is lame now. And I'm like, no, it's still so cool. (laughs) Awesome. You guys were wrong. Episode one was not that bad. It was okay. This one's going to be better. Now he's not a whiny little kid. He's going to be, now he's an angsty teen. (laughs) Yeah. going to be an angry teenager i saw this movie life is a house uh with the kid in it he's he's a decent actor i think we're going to be okay this is going to be a good star wars movie i'm super excited and i went in and again was totally blown away by the all of the amazing visuals and uh kind of walked out of it going huh did i miss something uh, yeah. What, what 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 happened? What just happened? Uh, and luckily, I'd bought because again, this was the beginning of the internet age of being able to order tickets online. So I bought one ticket for like ten in the morning, and then another one for like three in the afternoon. So I went. I walked out of one theater and walked into the other one like immediately after. And um, I yeah, was still kind of eh about about it even after that i was like well this was kind of cool i liked seeing all the jedi get to fight Uh Um, i liked seeing christopher lee and uh and ewan mcgregor um in that that kind of 
uh, battle of wills that they were having. And, you know, it was very like silly and pulpy and a throwback to whatever. Um, but there were, there were pieces of it that I liked, but, uh, I was, yeah, overall not, um, not super impressed. Cool looking, but eh. Yeah, and what's really, really funny is that you mentioned earlier about the whole, you know, George Lucas not always being, he's a great visionary director, uh, but maybe not quite as much about eliciting a great performance out of an actor or even possibly writing the best scripts. And it's really funny because I was, I've been, that's like my kind of angle on this. And for people who don't know us, we don't plan anything with this podcast. We pretty much just sit down and be like, cool, we'll talk about this movie, this movie, this movie, and then go. So it's really interesting that we're having the exact same thoughts because I walked out of, um, Attack of the Clones, um, and I was angry. So I walked out of Phantom Menace and was just kind of, eh, I was kind of disappointing. Um, oh, I, I just, I, I almost never wanted to see another Star Wars movie, like a new one again, because, I mean, the script was so horrible. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably one of the worst scripts I've ever seen in a movie. The, the performances are, bleh. I mean, you mentioned before Hayden Christensen in Life Is a House is decent. I mean, Natalie Portman is fantastic. I love Natalie Portman. And in these movies, she gives the most wooden, lifeless performance I've ever seen from an actress. Um, and standing with Hayden Christensen. Again, the only person really showing off here is Ewan McGregor because I don't think he can do anything wrong. <laughs> um, so I was really, really upset. And I was like, well, let me go see it again. But before I do that, I was going to read uh, the novelization of the book, of the, of the script, because I was like, maybe I missed something. Um, and so reading it again, it, the horrible thing is like, I hate sand. It gets everywhere. That's from the script. And going back and actually reading the book and understanding, it's not so much the movie I'm upset at, it's the script. I was able to go back in and enjoy it a little bit more the next couple times. Because um, again, Star Wars, I'm going to see it a couple times in theaters. Um, but yeah, it's George Lucas. Visually, he's a great director. He comes up with some amazing ideas. The problem is he can't write good scripts. And if you go back and you look at the different Star Wars movies, you know, the first Star Wars, New Hope, again, it was cool, it was fun, not the best script. Empire Strikes Back is, you know, one of the greatest movies ever made. And if you look at that with Empire, Jedi, and Force Awakens, you can see in there that George Lucas isn't doing the script. He might be helping, but, like, Lawrence Kasdan is doing the brunt work of doing that. So I think the problem with the prequels, and especially with Episode Two was that Lucas was trying to have too tight of a control to put his quote-unquote vision in place that when he should have reached out and maybe asked Lawrence to come back and help him because he did amazing things with Empire and Jedi. Um, but yeah, there's, again, there are some fun parts. Seeing Yoda fight, I thought was the coolest thing ever. I love Christopher Lee. You know, we, we talked about him a couple of us, well, a while ago when he, when he passed. Um, so there are some cool moments Django Fett was fun. I didn't mind the fact that, you know, the clones were a little bit different than what we thought. You know, I thought, always thought the Clone Wars would have been like two Obi-Wan Kenobis running around or something like that. Uh, but yeah, the, the script is what destroys this movie and Lucas's inability to pull a decent performance out of his actors. So the behind every great writer is a great editor. And I think that what made Star Wars so great was Lucas was under an intense amount of pressure and scrutiny. And every time he went back to Fox and said, I need more money, I want to do this, and he had to be able to justify it. And there was someone yanking on his chain that said, yes, you can do this, you can't do this, that's ridiculous. This time around, yeah. Lucas was funding all of this on his own dime, and he had Rick McCallum acting as his producer, who uh, I think Rick McCallum seems like a super nice guy, but he could not jerk George's chain and say, George, that's no, really, no, <laughs> which is what needed to happen a couple of times in these movies. And just, I, I'm not one of those people who, yeah, I had this idea in my head of what the prequels were going to be like. And I'm not one of those kinds who's like, oh, well, if I have the script mapped out in my head and it doesn't match that, then I'm disappointed. I, I try and keep those expectations out of it. But I do go back and I say, like, if you just changed one or two little things 
and someone needed to be able to be there and tell Lucas to change one or two little things and and have it be done. Someone needed to go in there and like be this this romantic dialogue in here with Padme and Anakin isn't working. Um, I, I'm hearing Brian's voice in my head saying, oh, well, he's an awkward teenager who's been raised by uh, a bunch of monks who, like, don't interact with um, people of the opposite sex. And so he doesn't know what he's doing. And I'm like, bullcrap. Um, there's... They're a female Jedi. <laughs> you can still portray that without having it seem so stilted you can get people being awkward towards one another just watch an episode of Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm oh yeah you see people being awkward towards one another it's it's actually not that hard to do and you you can do it but you have to be deft about it and um you know Lucas is as subtle here as a little green Yoda jumping around doing crazy flips and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how subtle he is here. So, yeah. no, whatever. Uh, so, uh, Attack of the Clones is, I will say this, I think it is the most visually impressive of any of the Star Wars movies. But I would like to turn the sound down on it and and just watch it. There, mm-hmm. there's, there's a thing on the DVD for The Matrix where you can turn off the dialogue and the sound effects and just watch it with the soundtrack. Oh, the mute button? Yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> that's what I want to do with um, with Attack, Attack of the Clones. Is um, hear that John Williams score and watch the movie. What's really interesting too is uh, Topher Grace is a huge. You know, he was on a you know that '70s show and he was the horrible Venom in uh, Spider-Man Three. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about this, but he's a huge, huge Star Wars nerd. And he actually took all the prequels, edited them down to, I think, about a two-and-a-half, three-hour movie, uh, and then had his friends over and screened it for him. And apparently it's the most amazing Star Wars movie you could ever hope to see. But, of course, with licensing rights now that Disney's got their thing going, uh, we'll never see it. But I, I think that would that would be awesome because it would take the best parts cause, uh, of all of them. And I think the main focus was on Revenge of the Sith, which I'm going to bring up right now because, to me... Revenge of the Sith is the best prequel. Uh, I made one mistake with Revenge of the Sith, though. I read the novelization before I saw the movie. I was, I, I mean, this I is the one. Too. What happened? Yeah, uh, this is the one we, we've been waiting for this Anakin and Obi Wan fight. We wanted to see how Anakin fell to the dark side, you know, the, how the Emperor became the Emperor. I mean, that was, this is what we've been waiting for since we first, you know, for, since the prequels began. So I would say my hype and ex- excitement for this movie was probably at this point now higher than. Uh, Phantom Menace, tempered a little bit, of course, by Attack of the Clones, but I mean, this is, they can't screw this up, can they? Uh, And the novelization was so good, and, you know, obviously, books are there to really get the psyche and what the character's thinking, whereas a movie is portraying what the character can do. So, as Anakin turns and becomes Darth Vader, in in the book at school, it talks about how, in his mind, the spirit of fear that leads to the dark side is like a dragon, and the dragon's like eating, the, eating away at him. So the moment when he finally kneels down and becomes Darth Vader, to this day, is one of the, the favorite things I've ever read. I mean, I went back and read that page like twenty times. So in the movie, when he just kind of like turned to the dark side, he's like, "Okay," it's like, "Really? <laughs> That's all you're gonna do it?" And again, it goes back to we talked about Lucas being unable to get that kind of performance out of his actors. Um, but no, there's there's a lot to love here. The action is fantastic. Um, there was it's heartbreaking. I mean, the, when he goes in and kills the younglings, even though you don't even see it, that was I didn't I didn't even think about that. I just kind of like, well, yeah, of course he's gonna have to do that. You know, Order sixty six and um, and the final battle between Obi Wan and, and Anakin, fantastic moments. The moments I can go back and watch again and again. In fact, uh, Episode three is the prequel I go back and watch probably every couple months because it's so much fun. Again, there's performance issues, dialogue issues. Um, oh, I hate you! Rawr, at the end, again, we like you said, Lucas needed someone to come in and slap him on the nose with a roll of newspaper and say, "No, do this instead." And the movie would probably become a classic. What he needs to say to him is, "No, stop that! No." Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, episode three is my favorite prequel. Uh, 
there's there's a lot of good here that completely overwhelms any of the bad stuff. Yeah, I I it's crazy how we're so on the same page here because that's exactly how I feel too. Um, yeah, I got I got really wrapped up in the hype on this. In fact, I have a very interesting story. Um, uh, in the run up to this, they released they didn't release the whole soundtrack yet, but they'd released that one clip battle of the heroes from the from the finale and i was like oh my gosh i have to see this movie (laughs) this is an amazing piece of music and it makes me feel all of that tension all of that rage and uh i i have to see this so i was up all night working uh editing uh a we're editing a technical manual of all things i was helping a friend out on a project and I made an iTunes playlist that only had four songs in it and Battle of the Heroes. (laughs) And I worked from 8 o'clock at night until 6 o'clock in the morning. Oh, God. I only listened to those four songs, uh, including Battle of the Heroes. And that was... uh, It's it's forever, like, ingrained in my soul. I just... I love that piece of music. More than uh, probably 70-80% of the other Star Wars music, Mm -hmm. which is... Um, there's so much in this movie to absolutely love. The only thing that didn't happen in this movie that I really wanted to see happen, I always thought that what what would please everyone is if Anakin, rather than killing younglings to show just how far he'd gone to the dark side, kill Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar is an innocent in no, no, this. Jar Jar is the whole reason we have the Empire, so let's not go there. I hate Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> no, 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 but, okay, but he got manipulated. It's it's because he's an idiot. And, but that would be so perfect if Palpatine made Anakin kill Jar Jar. Because everyone wanted to see Jar Jar die. Everyone would have been like, man, that was badass. And it would have been the Emperor, like, cleaning up loose ends. Because <laughs> um, he hated Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> yeah, that would have been, like, if if I had been there to be able to, like, give Lucas script notes, I'd been like, I think we should have Anakin kill Jar Jar. I think that would be really good. People would really like that. <laughs> why, why do you want him, why do you want him to kill my favorite Gungan? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so uh, I, I, but yeah, I, I really love that movie. Uh, yeah, with the exception of a couple little things. I will admit, though, I have a soft spot for any movie where a character raises his fist to the sky and there's a tower tracking shot upwards as he goes, No! (laughs) I I kind of love that. But I also realize how stupid and hackneyed it is. But I love it like in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back when they do it because they're doing they know it's a cliche and it's funny and I feel like Lucas did it not knowing not being aware that it was hackneyed and a cliche but being like I think this is something that people would like to see in my film (laughs) (laughs) no no again rolled up newspaper no (laughs) (laughs) so there you have it Uh, you know the the prequels, I don't believe, deserve all the hate they get. Um, as we discussed, there are, even in the ones we didn't like very much or have the most problems with, there are some nuggets of good stuff. Uh, and I know we're all going to go back there and watch them all again. So maybe this time, kind of going with that mindset of finding the good stuff and then kind of forgetting the bad stuff. And let's keep our fingers crossed and pray that one day, maybe, we will get to take a look at uh, Topher Grace's Supercut, which gives us the perfect Star Wars prequel movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, here here's a question. If you had to rate them on our normal scale of 0 to 10, where would you put them? I, I would go Phantom Menace 7, Attack of the Clones 6, and Revenge of the Sith 8. I would do 6.5 for Phantom Menace. I would do a 4 for Attack of the Clones, and I would do an 8 for um, Revenge. Yeah. I, I, just, I absolutely... Okay. There's, Attack of the Clones is... Even though I said there is some good stuff in there, it's it's the one I've literally watched the least. It's even it's on TV, you know, because you know, TNT or whoever always does Star Wars marathons. I will sit and watch any Star Wars movie except for that one, unless it's like at the very end when 
they do all the cool lightsaber stuff. Uh, that's just the one that will be the hardest for me to get through. Going back and watch them all over again. I just I think about stuff like Caravan of Courage or the Christmas special though, and I'm like, you know, compared to that, this is still a pretty good movie. And compared to like <laughs> actual really bad movies, like things that we've had to sit through this year, I um, you know, yeah, Attack of the Clones. I I still maintain is not a bad movie. It's not even a, a below average movie. It's just sort of meh, and it's not. It's it's like that underachieving student that you know is capable of so much because he's freaking Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars. He should be giving you a nine out of ten or ten out of ten movie every time, and if you don't, then you are slumming it and you are slacking. Uh, well, hopefully, I mean, again, trying to keep <clears throat> the hype down as much as I can, but I, I am very excited for, as we all are, for Force Awakens. Uh, I think it's got a good pedigree, and I'm sure we'll kind of go into more. Obviously, when the movie comes out, we'll be talking about it, but um, everyone, don't get, you know, just, it's a, a new movie. It's going to be Star Wars. It looks really cool, uh, but don't go in with the same level of hype that you did with Episode One. Because no matter what, someone's going to get pissed. Someone's going to get upset because it didn't didn't show them the way they wanted to see things, or it didn't live up to their expectations. And then they're just going to go online and become that geek who we all just want to punch and throw it on a well. So I think I think everyone should just breathe. And like the week after, the week between when Force Awakens comes out and the day after Christmas, we. We can talk about Star Wars like in person with one another or on the phone, but I think especially on social media, everyone just take a break. Be like, especially all you evil people who live in Britain who will see it three days before us. <laughs> Bloody yeah. bastards! Yeah, but it's just you know, I think things have a tendency to get blown out of proportion, even when they're not that big of a deal. It's like, suddenly, somebody's outraged about this. And it's like, no, that person wasn't actually outraged. They just, like, pointed out that that was a thing, and that wasn't really cool. (laughs) Well, if it wasn't for everyone getting outraged at everything, the internet wouldn't exist anymore. That and pornography. Um, (laughs) I was going to say, there's still porn, so... (laughs) So, Outrage porn. Oh, God, no. I don't think about that. That's gross. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, everyone, thanks for listening. I know it was a bit of a longer episode, but we really wanted to stay on track with these Star Wars uh, discussions, so we had to knock out all three in a row. So that'll do it for this week. Uh, next week, we've got Disney Pixar's The Good Dinosaur, which I'm really excited to see. Uh, hey, more Pixar is always a good thing. Uh, Creed, which I guess you could say is Rocky 9 or 25. I don't know. Um, and then Victor Frankenstein, which uh, I'm going to try to squeeze in, but that's the same night that I'm seeing Good Dinosaur, and I, I made my decision, and I chose wisely. Yeah, all three of those screenings are the same night for me, too, and I'm, I'm going to take the family to go see Good Dinosaur. I'm going to try and see Creed and Victor Frankenstein on my own. Uh, yeah, and most of the movies come out this week on um, Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, so that's why they're kind of trying to squeeze them in as fast as possible um, for that you know five-day weekend bump. So. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be back for that next week. We'll talk to you later. Hail Satan, and have a lovely afternoon. Tripping, but it's alright. Hold me 
scored a key, he's gonna fly, punk ass fly.